Greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country and international culture and lives. Hello, Arnold. (laughs) What's happening, Mark? I know. You know, we have a a guest coming up who wrote a book, 64 Cardinals, 1960. And this is the reason I can't speak is because of the Cardinals. Okay, so I went to the opening day a week ago. It was cold, uh, maybe a little rainy. I don't know. There was very little. I went to. Did you? And I screamed quite a bit. But I said, you probably had one of those suites or something. No, but our seats are underneath. <laughs> okay, he's just making it worse. So, <laughs> so I've had I've kind of lost my voice. I, I've had my COVID test. I've had my bronchi, whatever. I've had every test that you can imagine, even my IQ test. But and they're all negative. So that's <laughs> that's good news. But my voice is finally starting to come back. It is. So it's starting. I won't be talking much today. Okay. But shame on the Cardinals for doing this to me. It's their fault. They should give me free tickets. I think for the rest of the year. Don't you? Yeah. Opening day next year. Uh, right. And it's <laughs> I, and you know I can I just can I just I know you have things to do. No, go ahead. But I've never been to an opening day, and I'm in my sixties. And my my whole family's gone. My kids have gone. My one son works in the broadcast booth uh, at at with the Cardinals with uh, well did with Mike Shannon and with uh, John Rooney and all of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, they've all been, and I've never been ever. <laughs> they I get they always left me home. So my youngest son got tickets and invited me. So I was really excited to go, and I got my chance to go my very first time. So and they won, and your voice they did the win, and my voice is gone. And I guess this is what I get. That's right. So I'm never going again. You just you just have to make sure you go to games that they don't win. <laughs> no, don't. go to games when it's warm. Okay, that's a good idea too. All right. Our guest is Bob Tiemann. He saw his first Stan Musial home run in 1957. He's an award-winning baseball historian. He's written several books, contributed to and edited many journals for the Society for American Baseball Research. And he is the co-author of Ten Rings, Stories of the St. Louis Cardinals World Championships. He's also the co-author with Ron Jacober of a new book, 64 Cardinals, A Team, A Season, and a Showdown for the Ages. Bob, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Well, thanks for having me. I was really intrigued by this book when I first saw this because this is, along with probably the 67 series and 68 series, that whole 60s Cardinals group really resonates with me especially there's a personal reason because i met first baseman bill white and got a signed cardinal baseball from him in 1965 so i i also remember listening to these games on my transistor my turquoise transistor radio with my ear ear pieces underneath the sheets when my parents thought i was in bed listen to harry carey and jack buck okay well a lot of people did um i uh i was not living in st louis at the time but um, I used to do a lot of that uh, listing under the covers, too. So. Now, how'd you get to be a baseball historian? Well, um, I studied uh, history in college, but there was no, you couldn't do baseball history back in those days. And it's a serious uh, academician, but it sort of became an avocation. And um, I got with the SABRE, the Society for American Baseball Research, I got involved in 19th century um, research, especially. So I've got all the, I've been working on the 1875 season uh, a lot lately. So wow, 
box scores for all the games. We we had to create statistics for the very first league, and um, that was uh, one of my biggest projects for Saber. But then all major league history has just been my menu venue for years and years as an avocation but not doesn't pay much though <laughs> except in a lot of enjoyment a lot of enjoyment that's right now, what was the bug that got you going in this was it watching musical hit that home run or when did you well first... yeah um that, that was 1957 that's the first baseball i really remember and uh, ever since i've you know been following baseball avidly so now you have these books that you've written and obviously you've been a Cardinals fan for a long time, but you weren't initially here in St. Louis. No, well, I was actually, I was born in St. Louis, but when I was one year old, Anheuser-Busch um, opened their first branch brewery in Newark, New Jersey. My dad was one of the cadre moved from St. Louis out there. So from age one to 15, I lived in New Jersey. New so did you see Musial hit the home run out at, there? At the Polo Grounds, the last Cardinal-Giants game at the Polo Grounds. Wow. Cut it out. Wonderful. Back to back with uh, Wally Moon. Is, uh, I can still remember it. So. Oh wow. Uh, now, let me ask you this before we kind of get into the book. As you look back on the history of the people that you've seen play on the, for the Cardinals, who would you? how would you rank players? Or who's a player that stands out to you or players that stand out to you? Well, um, you know, the two, one and two would be Musial and Pujols. Hmm. Um but I've had my own favorites. I mean, not necessarily the best players, but right. my favorites. But I, I was a big Mike Tyson fan, not, not the boxer, but the second oh. base shortstop oh, right. in the 70s. Okay. Mm-hmm. What fascinated you about him? Oh, um, the fact that he made a career out of not a great deal of talent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he was uh, Pretty scrappy, especially in those, around those double plays. Right, right, right. Yeah. And there was another player you mentioned, you thought? Oh, um, well, um, John Tudor was just so fun to watch pitch. Um, when he uh, he could make guys like, I remember especially Vaughn Hayes, who played for the Phillies, had a big wide open stance. And Tudor could throw him slow, slower, and slowest. And Hayes, you could just see the smoke coming out of his ears when he was trying to hold that bat back. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, all of them really. Yeah, but uh, that's cool. So this '64 Cardinals book, why that year, and why this book? Well, um, in many ways, first of all, the Cardinals had gone 18 years without winning a pennant, getting the World Series, and there were no playoffs or anything, just the World Series. They're kind of on their way now to that. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. But um. Um, and it was just so – it was a very unique season. Um, all the turmoil – there was turmoil in the front office, turmoil in the clubhouse. Um, the team wasn't – looks like it wasn't going to go anywhere, so Gussie Bush was at wit's end what to do. F- fired the general manager in August. Was going to fire the manager and bring in Leo DeRocher for the new manager. But he said, well, we'll wait till after the end of the season for that. Then they win the pennant. Johnny Keene, the manager that won the pennant, had already decided he was going to quit. So they have a, the day after the World Series, um, first of all, in New York, the Yankees fired Yogi Berra the day after the World Series, even though they'd won the pennant. He'd won the pennant in his first year as a manager. And then the Cardinals had a press conference at the brewery, 
and we're going to announce a new contract for Johnny Keene, said Keene handed Gussie Bush his resignation letter, which had been dated two weeks before, saying, you know, I've had enough, no more. <laughs> and then five days after that, Johnny Keene signs to manage the Yankees. So he kind of had this deal in his back pocket the whole time, hmm. playing against, even playing against the Yankees in the World Series. Yeah. So it's just uh, odd or unique circumstances all year long. It was very unusual. You lead up to that series with a variety of uh, historical uh, facts and kind of stats on the team and how the team was built. And yeah. would you go into that a little bit? Well, um, Bush uh, bought the team, Anheuser-Busch bought the team with Gussie Bush as the president of the club, as well as the president, of course, of the brewery. And he didn't know much about baseball. So the first general manager that they had was a guy named Dick Meyer, who was a brewer. He didn't have any baseball background. <laughs> oh, really? So they eventually hired a guy named Frank Lane, who was a professional general manager. Trader Frank. He traded every. He wanted to make trades, you know, every morning it seemed. Um, he traded Red Shandinst, and that was not very popular. And, that, and he was about to trade. He was working on a trade for Stan Musial, and the brewery said, "No, you can't do that. That'll ruin our fan base." So Lane quit the team. Then you know said, "Well, if I can't make the decisions, you know, I'm gone." So Lane's assistant, um, Bing Devine was a St. Louisan who started out with the team before World War II, 1939, as an office boy and worked his way up general managers and through the minor leagues and um, had a long run in Rochester at their AAA club in Rochester. They made him the general manager. And he then, um, there was a trade on the uh, in the works for uh, Ken Boyer for Richie Ashburn to the Phillies. Now, Ashburn's a Hall of Fame center fielder, but a little older than Boyer. And Devine decided he was going to build a team around, Devine, uh, around Boyer. And so he very methodically, 1958, he traded for Kurt Flood, 1959 for Bill White, 1960 for Julian Javier, 1963, then they brought in Dick Grote. And none of the, there was some guys coming up through the minor league system too, but Tim McCarver, Bob Gibson, most notably. And um, it was slow going until 63. They finally uh, made a run at the pennant. They they got, uh, with a month to go, they were six, seven games out behind the Dodgers. And then they won 19 games out of 20 over a 17-game day period. Wow. And suddenly they were only a game behind and you know, with two weeks to go, and here we go. Cardinals are going to win. Then the Dodgers came to town, swept a three-game series, and Cardinals' pennant hopes for 63 were gone. But they were in good shape for 64. Everybody thought they'd be real contenders. And, um, of course, they got off to a bad start, and Devine made his last big trade then at the trading date to bring in a guy named Lou Brock. Yeah, huge trade. A huge trade. <laughs> and initially, when the trade was made for Brock, everybody said, well, we gave up our opening day starter, Ernie Brolio, won 18 games the year before, won 20 previous years. Um, and well, we get to this guy, Brock, who 
can't seem to find his way with the with the Cubs. Um, the Cubs wanted Brock to be a power hitter, and he did have some great power. He hit the only home run ever into the center field bleachers at the polo or the right center field bleachers at the polo ground. Hmm. Pretty small window there to right. to hit, but uh, 480 foot home run. So. Wow. So he could, you know, hit the ball far, but struck out a lot. Um, and the Cubs were not a running team at all. Well, the Johnny Keene, the Cardinal manager, he got Brock specifically to add some speed to the offense, aggressiveness. So Brock came to the team um, and immediately won the fans and the team, his teammates over. The Cubs, they thought that, you know, he was a very quiet guy. Very intense, but the Cubs thought, you know, that means he's indifferent. But and the Cardinals, though, they found out that he was just, you know, that's the way he was, and he was really driven to be a great to greatness. And when he got to, what Keen said, you just go ahead and run. Don't worry about hitting home runs. You know, steal bases, get on. Um, you know, get your base hits, and uh, that really impressed with a. The team was impressed pretty quickly, and the city was agog. It took them like 10 days to steal seven bases with the Cardinals to tie for the team lead at that point. <laughs> you kind of mentioned in, in the book that he did not get a lot of direction in Chicago. He, no. He played baseball late, I guess, in high school and really didn't have a lot of focus from the managers back then. No, no. Well, the Cubs didn't even have a manager back then. They had That's college of coaches, they called it, um, with one coach being designated as head coach. And they, this is, they did it for four years. And That explains things, Chicago. Oh, that, and the goat, yeah, the <laughs> yes. whole thing. Uh, <laughs> the whole thing. But, um, but, one, but finally, um, the, the last Cub head coach uh, – told Brock uh, just before he got traded actually that you know you're thinking up there you you go up there to the bat and you're thinking too much just just swing the bat and um so then when he got to the Cardinals he didn't have to think you know just get on you know I'm not don't have to worry about the long ball and right. this so he could play his game which you know his game was a hall of fame as hall of fame ball player you know you bring up a great point there that sometimes when I watch a game whether it be baseball or football or basketball and I'm thinking sometimes guys overthink, and then sometimes guys don't think at all. Mm-hmm. And in in baseball, how much, you know, it, I don't want to say it's some guys can become a head case, but they can psych themselves out. Or does management put so many screws on people that they've got so much going on, they just can't naturally go out and have fun and enjoy what they're doing? Well, that you know, that's always a debate. You know, the Cardinals, um, Johnny Keene and, and Red Chaney, they were just let the players play. You know, develop their own talent, develop their talent, do what you can to help them, but then don't uh, try to make them fit your mold exactly. Now, probably the greatest manager ever was John McGraw in 1910s, 1920s, and he controlled every aspect of, you know, won 10 pennants for the Giants. And he controlled, he called all the pitches and, Players, wow. you know, the famous story that he sent guys was sent up to bunt. He had a home run, and McGraw fined him for not bunting. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's you know two different ways to look at it. Right, right. Um, I, you know, letting the guys play has worked pretty well for the Cardinals so mm-hmm. over many decades. Though, mm-hmm. so right. 
No, Ernie Broglio, he did not actually turn out to be the pitcher that Chicago thought he was going to be. No, he was he was damaged goods, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd had a little bit of a um, problem, shoulder problem with the Cardinals and missed a couple starts in 64, but he never really came, overcame it. So, so he, you know... Won like six set games that after that was the Cub entirely. So you get into something that, and we might do this in the second half, where this whole aspect you bring in history into this uh, book. You talk about uh, a little bit about Stan Musial being brought onto the presidential fitness program. Right. After his retirement, and I'm sure he was disappointed that they didn't win in '63 because he wasn't a part of the team after that. Right. And then but, you also bring in about the voting rights or the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1964. Right. The first first big Civil Rights Act since really Reconstruction. So. Right. And when we come back after the break, we're, and we've got several several minutes yet. But in our in our next segment, I, I want you to talk about how the Cardinals dealt with that because they dealt with that in, in a unique way. I'm kind of teasing the listeners right now to to stay to stay over because they dealt with it. You correct me if I'm wrong, more uniquely than any other team at the time. I that's a to the general consensus that um, when Marvin Miller, the player um, player union head. Um, came he would visit each club and he remarked later that the cardinals seemed to have the best harmony of any clubhouse any team so yeah and that harmony extended in in spring training and we'll get into a couple stories about that now you did this co-did this book with ron jacober how do, how do you co-write a book together what's that how do you do that well um we there's various ways but i did most of the um the historic text and he interviewed the living players to get their um, specific memories and um, hmm. and he you know added some of his insights too but uh, and I, most people know Ron Jacober and as, right. if you've been in St. Louis a while you That's know he was right. a news broadcaster on television and radio and a sports broadcaster right, sports uh, broadcaster, yeah. broadcaster right. announced the, time, the yeah. uh, he used to announce the games on what I guess uh, channel 5 for a while right, he, right. yep and, and, and yeah. he uh, when they used to like share it with like five would do it this <laughs> couple of these games well, he, and then somebody he, do it. Yeah, he says that they had like thirty games a year was the most they ever did. Is that it? Five. Okay. But that was you know, and that was all you got except for the Saturday game of the week. Well and, and to give Ron his his due here, he's right. covered sports on radio and television for forty seven years. Wow. Cardinal baseball, blues hockey, college basketball on ESPN, college football, soccer games, hundreds of them. Right. The Olympics for CBS Radio, a longtime sports director for KMOX uh-huh. Radio. He's a member of the St. Louis Radio Hall of Fame, St. Louis Media Hall of Fame, St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame, and the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame. Now, I also remember Ron uh, announcing the most boring sport ever, golf. <laughs> I, yeah, I, maybe. I, he may have. Um, <laughs> I he, thought he did he some golf. He was with um, I, he he worked with um, at Channel Five. He Jay Randolph. With Jay Randolph. Yeah. And Jay Randolph was the golf guy. Was well, Jay the Absolutely. guy? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that could be. All right. Jay Randolph. He broadcasts the most boring sport to you. <laughs> golf. It's the worst. <laughs> I mean, I like golf. Don't get, wrong. Don't get wrong. My family, my my wife's side loves golf. <laughs> but boy, to watch golf, I think watching paint dry is better. Well, yeah. 
you know, it's it's so three dimensional, and you watch it on two dimensional <laughs> screen. Okay, and you see the ball a blue dot in the black. I know. Where is background. it? How do they so, follow it with the camera? I'm like, yeah. I was like, okay, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to take that. But we digress, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so, if we have time to get to answer this question, why is the game so slow now? I remember Bob Gibson pitching. The game would be like an hour and fifty five minutes. Mm. Um, they do take well the batters as much as the pitchers. Yeah. Um, you know. The, yeah, take it out. Uh, <laughs> Taking off the gloves and right. you know, knocking the shoes and right, getting out, just stepping out and coming. yeah, in and out. But um, the it's also uh, another thing, maybe too thinking too much. You know, we got to study those charts now. You don't see those same teams as much as you used to. So oftentimes, you know, you're not nearly as familiar. You know, Bob Gibson knew exactly what he was going to do with Henry or try to do with Henry Aaron every time. Right. You know, so. Um, but you know, then you get a Tampa Bay comes in once every other year, and you, know, you don't know any of those batters, so yeah. you got to figure it. You know, study your card inside your hat. That's true. Yeah, you got to do your homework ahead of time. Yeah, just blow it by them. I love it. This is great. I'm enjoying this interview. This is yeah. Th- yeah. Well, we're going to get into some real fun stuff and about the stadiums also. Man, Sportsman's Park. What a what oh, yeah. a real deal that yeah. was. That was. Yeah, unbelievable. It's it just it the the first um, major league game played on that lot was in 1875. So. Oh, wow. wow, holy smokes! Was that the Negro League then, or what? That, that was uh, the the original, the first pro team, the St. Louis Brown Stockings. Okay, all right, uh, it was the Browns. They were, okay. The next year, the National League got founded, and St. I Louis see. was a okay. member of that league. So. Wow, this is wonderful. We're going to come back and talk to Bob Team and some more. We're talking about his new book with Ron Jacober, The 64 Cardinals, A Team, A Season, and A Showdown for the Ages. We'll be right back after our next segment. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston on the U.S. Radio Network. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We're talking to Bob Tiemann. He's award-winning baseball historian and author, and he's an author with Ron Jacober of the new book, 64 Cardinals, A Team, A Season, A Showdown for the Ages. And that book, folks, is available from Reedy Press in St. Louis here. It's a hardcover book, 11 by 11. It's, it's just got great photos, wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, story in here, and there's going to be an upcoming book signing also at St. Louis Public Library, the Schlafly Branch on Euclid. That's Tuesday, April 26th at 6 p.m. Okay. There's an author presentation at the St. Louis City Library. That's Grant's View. That's at 7 p.m. on May 17th. And then at Barnes & Noble out at Mid-Rivers Mall, there's another author signing June 4th from 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock. So I'll repeat those at the end of this segment. And... You can get this book, again, from Reedy Press. That's readypress.com. So, Bob, we were kind of talking off-air about Dick Grote, and he was the shortstop at the time. And in the, in the book you mentioned he and Johnny Keene, they kind of clashed a little bit, and you were commenting about? Well, um, Grote was the, he'd been the league batting title and MVP, batting champ and MVP for the Pirates. And he, you know, was the, with, along with, well, he was the sort of senior member um, or the, with the most seniority in the league, at least, not with the team. So when the Cardinals got him in 63, um, he almost won the pen, batting title again. Um, he's finished second in the league's MVP voting. 
you know, and was sort of the star of the team. And he was very good at hitting to the opposite field, a right-hand hitter who could hit hit and run behind the bat, the guys on base, Kurt Flood, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that worked out very well. But then at 64, and Grote would uh, call it himself. He would say, I'm going to hit and run. He'd signal to the batter or the base runner. And in 64, he kept doing that, but it wasn't working out as well. And so Johnny Keene, the manager of the Cardinals, said, said no, you can't call it on your own anymore. I'm going to take away your privilege, hit and run privilege. And that really riled um, Grote. And Grote was, you know, kind of a, an agitator by nature. You know, he would, he would get on the younger players if they made a mistake and, you know, tell them in no uncertain terms you know, what they should have done, you know, so. Um, although he did, he didn't really cause too much friction in the clubhouse, but um, Keene thought his authority was being questioned, so they had a kind of a, a clubhouse meeting right after the All-Star break, and Grote, or, or Keene called uh, him out, didn't laid he? down the law for Grote. Grote apologized to the, according to the whole team and hmm. sort of cleared the air. Um, now this uh, had some uh, effects later in that um, Grote complained about losing his hit-and-run privilege to a number of people, including Eddie Matthews of the Braves. Now Eddie Matthews' daughter was dating Gussie Bush's, or Eddie Matthews was dating Gussie Bush's daughter. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> Peyton place. <laughs> so... Um, Gussie heard about the friction between Keene and Grote through his daughter, through the Braves, and he thought he'd been left out, out of the loop. Um, and so that was one of the last straws that broke the back that, you know, Gussie says we're going to have to clean house. And first he fired the general manager, um, Bing Devine, and then it was everybody knew that Johnny Keene would go at the end of the year. But... Um, when never, did Grote leave the Cardinals? Never knew any of this. He, yeah, uh, he played stuff. 66, 65 was his last year. He okay. was traded away. I'm surprised he didn't get traded right away. Yeah. Well, he was too good a player, really. Um, and also then for the second half, you know, the problem, you know, there was the, he wasn't a problem. Um, so, you know, the har- you know the harmony – Finally, was restored, and the you team mean you mean he didn't have to put it on Twitter or or, or uh, <laughs> social media, you know? Facebook, he just yeah, he just uh, told a, another famous player who was happened to be dating the owner's daughter. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you know he probably told a lot of other players too. So, you know, but um, Matthews and Grote were about the same age, you know, and so they'd been in the league together, playing as rivals for a long time. So another wonderful player, Eddie Matthews. Yes. Mm-hmm. There you go. Now. 64, we're talking about the 64 series here, but prior to that, with integration, and by the way, if you're listening today, it's April 15th. If you're listening, and this is being played in July, oh well, it's April 15th when we're broadcasting this. Uh, This is the anniversary of Jackie Robinson coming into the league at the Brooklyn Dodgers, Mm -hmm. and there's a connection there with the person who brought him in and the person who used to actually work for the Cardinals. Right. um, The... Robinson was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers and their um, general manager, Branch Rickey. Now, Rickey had um, been with the 
St. Louis Cardinals from 1917 through 1942. He had sort of invented this farm system, turned the Cardinals from a no, you know, perennial losers into, you know, the powerhouse of the National League. They, and, uh, huh. but then he is his general manager. Um, he was the president of the team was Sam Braden, and so Braden would pick the manager and and. Um, Ricky would build the team for the manager. And also, Ricky also had a deal where if he sold contracts for players, they, and he signed lots of young players, lots of talent, and there was lots of players that he then sold to other National League teams. And so Ricky got a cut of all those sales, oh. a percentage. So Ricky was doing pretty well for himself. Now, Braden was doing pretty well for himself, too. Um, but... Um, at one point in, in 1939, Ricky hired a new manager, um, Ray Blades, one of Ricky's old uh, farm guys, farm system. And Braden, a year later, fired um, Blades. And so Ricky's, you know, the, the tension, which has always been there between the two, that was finally it. So when Ricky's contract ran out in 1942, he left the Cardinals and got immediately got hired by the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Ricky had always been and been in the back of his mind that he's going to try to integrate the you know bring African Americans into the big leagues. Now St. Louis was not the place to do that, right? But Brooklyn was, so he um, hired had his scouts scout the Negro leagues, mm. a lot of talent there, yeah. um, but he focused on Jackie Robinson, who was college-educated, had been an officer in the Army, um, and uh, but was not known for his baseball skills. He was, he was a football star, um, track star uh, at UCLA, mm -hmm. but um, hadn't played much. He only played one year of professional Negro League baseball. And when he was the guy that they signed, a lot of the um, – Negro League players thought, well, we got a lot better than him. Why are they using him? And um, a lot of the players like Bob Feller, who'd been a barnstorming, who barnstormed against Negro Leaguers for a long time, he said, oh, he, you know, he's not that good. You know, we can tie him up with inside fastballs. He, he won't make it in the big leagues. But um, actually he turned out to be a star player mm -hmm. um, and a great clutch hitter. And... Um, outstanding fielder and a base runner extraordinaire so he turned out to be more than anybody expected of him except maybe ricky and his scouts um, and when you think about being the first player like that i know I, I read an article recently that he also wasn't from the south he was from the west coast and so he was not accustomed to how blacks were treated back then in the south and you you want to try to make things successful not stumble and i think branch ricky thought that jackie robinson you know army officer you know ucla graduate College you know brain. star you know and College. he wasn't from the south that this was going to be he was going to be more successful than somebody else who oh yes he well, he um yes definitely had the the temperament and the dedication right um right. to to be then the self-control endure to endure what right. he did yeah now, if you if you wouldn't mind, get into what what the Cardinals did 
uh, in the early 60s, and it was really led by a couple of players. Right. Um, the Cardinals and the Yankees both used to have their spring training in St. Petersburg, Florida, and for many years, so from the end of World War II up through the mid-60s. And um, every year, the Florida, the St. Petersburg Chamber of Commerce held a big luncheon to, you know, highlight we're the big we're a big baseball town, and they'd invite all the white players, but none of the black or Latin players. Um, And this was you know 1961. um, You know, it was it was you know Florida. You know, there was laws against certain I guess there were mixing of races. Right, and. um, Bill White, who was, was born in, actually been born in Florida, but raised in um, uh, Ohio? Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah. Or, he, uh, he was not a rabble-rouser by any means, but he told a New York sports writer that, you know, you know he complained about that and said, you know, when are they going to treat us like humans? Mm-hmm. And so this um, Art Rickman, the sports writer published that in New York it got picked up here in St. Louis and I think one of the newspapers the Globe Democrat said you know let's boycott Budweiser you know to, because they're supporting uh, racism racism yeah right. so um, Bush said well you know that's that's not good for sales and Bush was not known you know for his any racial prejudices mm-hmm. in his workplace so right um, so he arranged to have some of his associates or friends of his. They bought a, two adjacent motels outside of St. Pete, um, down by the Skyway, if you know the area there. Um, and one for the, we had the whole team during spring training stay at that one motel. And the, all the players, both white and black, um, all their families, even, um, Ken Boyer, Bill uh, Stan Musio, the big stars who you know been there many years and had had private arrangements. You know they'd rent a house or or go stay with you know the same guys, same friends. Right. They all joined the team at the motel. The wives got to get together, you know, barbecue out on the patio. Um, the kids, there was like thirty kids at one point, you know, during spring break, staying here and. The white and black kids swimming would swim in this. Um, <laughs> now, hang on, folks. Say that again, Bob. The Say that again. The white and black folks would swim in the same the swimming pool together. And, and that, that was, was unusual. Well, that was illegal, actually. Yeah. Oh, theory. Um, although they nobody tried to enforce it. Right. Um, Thank goodness. And um, but you know people would drive down the highway and stop. <laughs> yeah. Sell tickets. Yeah. <laughs> but it made for a very. Um, Close team, yeah, too. cohesive, yeah, oh, yes, yeah. and um, it also, um, um, <laughs> within the next couple of years, all the teams had integrated their um, living facilities. Because at the time, if you were a black player, you had to go stay in the black section of town. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh. Um, Still Bob, me. Bob Gibson talked about his first spring training. You know, he flew flew in, gets a taxi cab that goes to the hotel in downtown St. Petersburg. Says, "I'm with the Cardinals. So you have room for me?" The, the desk clerk says, "Oh, here, here has the cab driver a, an address to take him to a private home in the Negro section of St. Pete." 
Um, and the next year, then, Gibson thought, well, you know, now I'd probably make the team, so a lot of people would bring their families. So he drove with his wife and kid um, down from Omaha, Nebraska, where he was born and raised, and said it was the worst trip ever because they could buy gas, but they couldn't use the restroom at the gas stations. Oh. They had to, or, you know, only right. the um, restaurants along the road. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, guys like White and, and Gibson and Kurt Flood, who's from California, you know, they they just couldn't stand, the, you know, the segregation. Yeah. And they, um, they were pretty outspoken about it, although, like I say, they weren't, you know, militant. Right, right. But, um, and they, you know, they would make a point of inviting some of their white teammates to go out to dinner or whatever, you know, just so, you know, we're, we're, we're a team. Now. Right, yeah. right. And they really did become a team. And guys like Tim McCarver, whose dad was a Memphis cop, who, you know, was, Memphis was not no. the most... Uh, Friendly, <laughs> friendly to, to to Negro citizens, and he's spoken about that, and, and Gibson's spoken about their relationship, yes. and and how Bob Gibson really kind of helped Tim McCarver understand, you know, th- you know things aren't that different, you know, right, and yeah, there was you know sort of a quiet ins- assistance, right, that they do, and then of course McCarver and Gibson were you know friends for life, right, you know even in their seventies they were touring the wine country of France together. So. Good for them. Uh-huh. What's, we're, we're what's your favorite story of the 64 World Series or the 64 season? Well, um, the 64 season, um, the final week of the, se- the season, the final tw- two weeks of the season were unbelievable, really. The, yeah, what happened to the Phillies? The Phillies, well... <laughs> Six and a half game lead with twelve to play, and then they lost ten in a row, including, <laughs> including three to Cincinnati and three to St. Louis, second and third place, and and four to Milwaukee who was fifth place. They were just sharing the brotherly love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they they lost their last seven home games and were booed out of the. Even though they've been in first place all year, they were booed out of Philadelphia. Couldn't happen to a nicer team. <laughs> uh-huh. But the Cardinals then won eight in a row, and. Um, the Reds had a nine-game winning streak, so they both passed the Phillies. But then the um, the Reds um, lost several games, and uh, the Cardinals fin- got to the final series of the season, three games to go against the Mets. The Mets were terrible, the, their third straight 100-loss season. Um, and the Cardinals, the Mets had an eight-game winning streak, the Cardinals had a or Mets had an eight-game losing streak. Cardinals just won eight in a row. So all the Cardinals had to do was win all three to clinch the pennant. Um, since nothing Cincinnati would have been able to do to catch him. Right. Um, Cincinnati had two games to play against the Phillies. And the Cardinals lost on Friday to the Mets. Bob Gibson got beat one nothing. Ooh. Um, he they Cardinals had the base or a couple men on base and. Got what looked like a game-tying base hit, and the ball hit the umpire dead ball. They had to send the runner back. Guy never did score. So the, the Cardinals complained that we lost because the Mets had an extra infielder. <laughs> um, <laughs> then the, he was dressed in blue. But, but luckily the Reds lost. The Reds suddenly had some problems too. 
Um, and then on Friday, Saturday, the Cardinals lost 15 to five to the lowly Mets, made six errors. Um, then, uh, so it comes down to Sunday. The Cardinals are a game ahead of both the Phillies and they're tied with the Reds and a game ahead of the Phillies. So it could have been a three-way tie if the Phillies won and the Cardinals lost. The Reds would lose to the Phillies. So even though the last day it could have been a three-way tie, the Phillies, after having their 10-game losing streak, snapped it. Gave the game before, they won easy, 10 to nothing. The Reds were just, they had internal problems and just didn't show up, basically. The Cardinals finally were able to beat the Mets, uh, a slugfest. Uh, Bob Gibson, when one day's rest came out, pitched four innings in relief, um, just ran out of gas in the ninth inning. They brought in Barney Schultz, their reliever, who was a key to their pennant run. Knuckleballer. The knuckleballer, yeah. Um, He'd been a. It was his twenty-first professional season. Yeah, party. he was. He was up there in age. He was, but you know, the knuckleball. He, he throw forever. Right, as uh, Johnny Keene said, well, he can't pitch long, but he can pitch every day. <laughs> so, um, and he pretty much did down the stretch. So the Cardinals won the pennant on the final day of the season. Um, Harry Carey finished his broadcast from uh, right behind the Cardinal dugout sitting right next to Gussie Bush. And so the last batter, you can hear Gussie Bush on the radio saying, come on, get him out, get him out. And then um, they get him out. Yeah, Harry starts screaming, the Cardinals win the pennant. The Cardinals win the pennant. I remember listening the to Cardinals that. The Cardinals win the pennant. Yeah, that was crazy. It was crazy. And um, so the, the miracle, it, it, it finally happened. They actually won the pennant after nobody had given them a chance almost all year. So. And then to come up against the Yankees, who had this dynasty, you know, you had Mantle, you had Maris, you had Yogi, and right. it just seemed like all these great pitchers, uh, you know, it was Whitey Ford and Whitey Mel Stoudemire. Yeah, Stoudemire was a rookie, but Whitey Ford, um, Jim Bouton, yeah. he, he beat the Cardinals twice that series. That was a challenge. It was a challenge. Um, the Yankees had won... This is the 14th pennant in 16 years for the Yankees. Oh my gosh! But um, and then they, you know, be another 12 years before they won another pennant. So reminds me of a team that beat the St. Louis Rams at a time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not even going to mention their name. <laughs> so yeah. the the final game, you know, we're tied three to three, three three wins apiece. Right. Mm-hmm. And the Cardinals come in, and man, they're just—they just start to blow it open. Well, they, um, yeah, they got out to a three-nothing lead the first run, and the the Yankees really played bad defense the whole series. Mm-hmm. Um, the first run, the Cardinals scored one. The Yankees tried to turn a three-to-six-to-one double play with the pitcher covering, the throw went behind them, and um, the man from second base wound up scoring. Then um, they. Had a double steal. Um, Mike Shannon hadn't, well, it was supposed to be a hit and run, but Maxfield swung and missed. Dal Maxfield, the substitute second baseman for the series. Yeah. Um, the Elston Howard, Yankees catcher, yeah. another big star. Right, right. Um, he threw down to second base. Bobby Richardson, the second baseman, saw that um, 
McCarver, Tim McCarver broke from third when Shannon start went to steal second, the, the double play, the regular double steal, and so Richardson cuts in front, tried of ignoring Shannon. Shannon tried to slide right into him, got a little piece of him. The ball was in the dirt, and uh, McCarver stole home then. Wow! So they and then uh, Lou Brock hit a home run. Um, Ken Boyer actually hit a home run that game too. Um, the Cardinals had a six nothing lead until Mickey Mantle hit a three run homer in the seventh inning. And uh, oh, oh, you know, so yeah, for six yeah. innings, the Cardinal fans are going crazy. Yeah. And now suddenly it's, it's a little tense here. Yeah. Well, Boyer hit a home run to make it seven to three. Um, and in the ninth inning, Gibson, who is running out of gas, he's pitching on two days rest really? after having pitched a ten inning complete game. Right. Ooh. A couple of days before. Right. Um, he gave up two solo home runs. Oh, my. But um, Johnny Keene left him in, and he finally got the last out, a pop-up. Uh, Al Maxfield was under it, and Dick Grote yells over, don't let it hit, in the, hit you in the coconut, Maxie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so Maxville, you know, so, oh, suddenly he got nervous, but he got the, made the catch. I'd be very <laughs> nervous. I would have been so the Cardinals. Um, win the game. There's a great picture, a famous picture of Dick uh, Bob Gibson um, collapsing into the arms of Ken Boyer at the right. mound. Yeah, they're hugging. Um, yeah, you know, you could see, you know, just yeah. given every ounce he had. Yeah, and people asked Keen afterwards, um, "Well, why didn't you take him out?" You know, he's obviously losing. It. And Keen's great quote was, "Oh, I had a commitment to his heart." Oh. That's absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, right. And then Keen, uh, good in, for him, yeah. in the locker room, then gave Gibson a big hug. Keen had been um, the manager in Omaha when Gibson signed his first right. pro contract. Right at, at his home, played for his hometown, oh, Omaha Cardinals. So he knew him so, really so, well, very well. Yeah. Yes. Um, and when Gibson didn't really become a good pitcher. Until Keene took over as manager of the Cardinals in 1961, but then in the locker room he gave Gibson a big hug. He said, "That way to go, Hoot. Nothing can stop you, you know now." And Gibson, you know, was yeah. The rest is history on that. The rest is history, certainly. But Gibson didn't realize that Keene was going to quit the next day. Right, right. And he was saying good. (laughs) He was just saying goodbye. It was his way to say goodbye. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've been having a great conversation with Bob Tiemann. He is an author with Ron Jacober of a new book, 64 Cardinals. It is available at Reedy Press, 64 Cardinals, a team, a season, and a showdown for the ages. And I want to remind folks on April the 26th at the St. Louis Public Library Schlafly Branch, that's on Euclid, at 6 p.m. There's going to be a book signing. Also, a book signing June 4th at Mid-Rivers Mall, Barnes & Noble, 11 to 12 o'clock. And on May 17th, an author presentation at the St. Louis City Library, Grants View, that's at 7 p.m. Bob, this has been a great book. I really enjoy... uh, these kinds of things, and I think you and Ron did a great job yeah. of capturing the essence of where the team was and how they got there, and then kind of framed it with some historical things. It's just marvelous book. Kudos to you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the, that Grants View uh, library is it's county library. County library. Yeah. Sorry about Music that. Music Road in Gravois. That's correct. St. Louis Just, County oh, that's Library. That's kind of a new one. I think that's a yeah, new yes, library. Yes. A brand new library yes. they put there. Down here by Bayless. Yeah. 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 By that new. Uh, 
yeah, subdivision there and everything. Yeah, so April 26th, St. Louis Public Library, Schlafly Branch, 6 p.m. May 17th, St. Louis County Library, Grants View, 7 p.m. Will they have the books for sale there? Will we be able to? Yes. Okay, great, because they're wonderful books. Yeah, they're also, also check your local bookstore. So, uh, Bob, thanks for coming on St. Louis in Tune. We greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. How much fun. Yeah. Great fun. fun. Great fun. Yeah. I love these kinds of things because it takes me back to my childhood. <laughs> you were a child once? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. Okay, I didn't know that. And favorite times that I recall in my memory, you know, listening to oh, yeah. Harry Carey and Jack Buck, you know, broadcast yeah. the game, those right. kinds of really interesting well, I, memories. Uh, I got to see the final game of the season against the Mets because it was on TV in New York. So, you know, a lot of, I don't think it was on TV here in St. Louis. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's all for this hour. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, even when the Martians invade, there's only one race, the human race, (laughs) and every one of us have different characteristics and is uniquely valuable. St. Louis in Tune is a production of Motif Media Group and the U.S. Radio Network for St. Louis in Tune. Studio manager Derek Abbott, co-host Mark Langston. I'm Arnold Stricker. Remember to walk worthy and let your light shine.